Hey everyone, and welcome to the Races IndyCar podcast. My name is J.R. Hildebrand, and joining me as ever to discuss the action from St. Petersburg last weekend is the Races American editor, Jack Benyon. What's up, Jack? How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm quite tired after this kind of two-race run, and that's without being in a, a humid kind of aero-screened cockpit that kind of <laughs> destroyed most of the drivers over the course of the weekend. So, A, quite interested to, to get into that whole topic, but B, also kind of worried for the drivers who are going straight to Texas next weekend as well, because that's going to be a, a real difficult one in, in terms of conditions, for sure. Shall we have a look at the order of things, just in case anyone who's listening to this very specific IndyCar podcast didn't actually watch the race or doesn't know what the result was? I guess um, it's pretty uh, easy to sum up how uh, how it all kind of played out because Colton Hurt just dominated from pole and led 97 of the 100 laps, which is a race record, just absolutely unassailable in the race. Um, basically stretched a, an 11-second lead out in the middle of the race, which was pretty phenomenal given people were still fuel saving and, and looking after tires, but also, uh, you know, pretty much had the worst thing that could possibly happen to you as a leader in IndyCar is that you get Joseph Newgarden sat behind you on one of his favorite tracks on a softer set of tires, which, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'd like anything less than that, to be honest, while I was a uh, leader in IndyCar race and he just kind of held Joseph off really comfortably. And yeah, Joseph was second and, and Simon Pagino, made it up to third. Jack Harvey had his first top five in a in a long time, didn't get one last year, and, and Scott Dixon doing Scott Dixon things, rounding out the top five and uh, making his push for the championship uh, nice and early. So, JR, I mean, where do we even start with this one for for Colton? Just how impressive was that drive this weekend, just from your perspective? You know, you know what these cars are like to handle. You know how difficult St. Pete is from a, you know, a conditions point of view, a, a temperature point of view, and also just from a, you know, a, the you know, how much we've talked about how close the field is in, in IndyCar at the minute and, and Colton's basically walked off with it. Yeah, I mean, I think just watching the race, it's funny that you bring it up in the context of how impressive was it or or how surprising was it? Because to me, it just wasn't really that surprising. It was obviously impressive uh, just on paper, but I think it's, these are the types of drives that I've come to, in some way, be ready to expect from Colton Herta. Uh, you know, before the, in the preseason sort of chatter that, that we had and just looking at what was going to go down this season, he's been my pick as a, an outside shot at, uh, among guys that maybe aren't top of mind to everybody as being championship contenders just over the last few years. He's my outside pick because I just know that he can do things like this as a race car driver, watching what he does, watching how he does it. You just know. And so this was, I think, a I think a really important, it was an important race for him and for his dad, uh, Brian, on the timing stand to be able to put it all together early in the season to make it known that they're capable of going out and doing this. And honestly, if you look back over the last just couple of years at the types of tracks that he's had events, I, you know, you don't want to say events like this because this was more dominant than his other race wins, but going to Texas next weekend, another place where he's absolutely going to be a contender for the win there, probably on both days and might be capable of doing some things that you just don't see from his other teammates over the course of that weekend, whether that's because of the combination of the two of them and them just being really dialed with the engineering staff on that car, or it's because they are actually doing something sort of special this is, I think, what 
what we could uh, we could see more of this throughout the course of the year basically i guess is is my point and a lot of that comes from the fact that colton's just one of these guys as a driver that it's a weird way to say it maybe but i just don't see him there's no wasted energy when he's driving the car it just when he's when he's qualifying when he's trying to put in a fast lap when he's in the race i just don't get the feeling watching him that he's pushing super hard to be at his maximum level he's just there and and he can maintain it and he can keep it up and he maintains his confidence and composure like there's no there's no head games going on for him to try to get into that place where he's just ripping off laps and so you know they talked on the broadcast about him they made it they made kind of a big deal i thought about him, you know, maybe struggling to deal with fuel saving situations in the past, that kind of thing, you know, working on that over the off season, to be honest, everybody works on that stuff in morning warmups and things like that. So that's not really anything out of the ordinary. I think that's just another, you, you look at all the guys that are championship contenders that have wins like this in their resume. You look at Scott and Joseph and Will Power and Simon Pagino and all these guys, this is just the type of stuff that the more IndyCar races they get in their belt, they get better at all of these other little things that you never do in Indy Lights or any other championship along the way. And so it it doesn't, it, while it was absolutely impressive on paper, it was not surprising to me at all that that's how this weekend went. And another piece of that is that we've seen Andretti be good here before as a team. That car, car just looked hooked up. It looked pretty easy to drive it looked easy to extract a consistent maximum or close to maximum out of it which makes that even easier than to play with your fuel save and and do that kind of thing so watching him in the car hearing the interviews afterwards i thought the interview with his dad with brian after the event just speaking to the composure that he had that brian knew he had could hear that he had in the car uh that's scary probably for everybody else. I think just to know that there's this young kid that has all of those tools already built up and has that kind of attitude. He's not going to be easy to get flustered. I don't think. And, um, you know, I, I don't think this is the last time that we're going to see something like this. So I guess, you know, the question, one of the questions for me that I'd, I'd like your take on is just, what do you think is the reaction you know, from his opposition and and even from within his within his own organization at Andretti as him, you know, sort of firing one off here and and maybe being, you know, we'll call it top gun at Andretti. Yeah. Well, top gun is what Joseph Newgarden uh, described Colton as at the moment at Andretti, which is something that I put to Joseph in the in the post-race press conference last night. Uh, you know, just how seriously a uh, Penske, for example, because they were the other two guys on the podium taken you know, Andretti as a whole and particularly Colton at, at that team, because since Rossi basically became the hottest sort of prospect on the silly season market, you know, a little while back now, and that was a prolonged and drawn out story, wasn't it? Obviously complicated by the fact that he signed with Penske and IMSA and then obviously uh, eventually decided to sign for Andretti for 2020 um, in, in the long term. And then since then has really just not particularly delivered for the team um, as as we know he can in the past. So it's it's been a, a real interesting storyline. And if we look at the 33 races that Colton has been in IndyCar full time since the start of 2019, you know, we've got some some really interesting stats now. And, and Colton has four wins to Alexander's two. He's got five poles to Alexander's two. Uh, he's got two fastest laps. Alexander's got none. 
Um, so, so there's some really interesting kind of, you know, stats starting to develop in, in Colton's favour now. And I think, you know, the race, there was, there was a few things about the race that, that made that really kind of special for me for, for Colton. It was the fact that, you know, you mentioned the, the fuel saving and working out, working on that in the off season as a, you know, quite a common thing. And I'd agree, but I think it's also symptomatic, symptomatic of his work ethic because every time Colton shows a weakness, he fixes it or works extremely hard to fix it. And it, it becomes much less of a weakness. So if we look at his rookie season, you know, he, he won a couple of races, but was really inconsistent. And then the following season, 2020, he was about as consistent as any driver out there, really. He just lacked those kind of headline results. And I think that was reflective of Andretti's struggles with setup and, and stuff last season. And then now we come to St. Pete, where Colton went off twice at turn four in at the end of 2020. And that's only October, so that's not that long ago. So that will have been in his mind as well, um, that, that he'd thrown it off a couple of times there and really ruined a chance at a podium, which would, you know, would have been a nice result to finish the year for him. And he's come back and absolutely dominated, barely put a foot wrong. You know, he talked about a few pancakes just touching the wall and stuff, but that's kind of, that's, you'll, we'll talk about that later, but that's kind of normal, isn't it, for for these guys? So, you know, just a, a really dominant performance and then set that off against Alexander Rossi, who, you know, had a bit of a damp squib of qualifying, was a, was 11th. Um, I think Michael Andretti and Rob Edwards had some, what looked like quite serious words after that qualifying lap in, in the pits that the NBC broadcast showed. And then, everything looked to be going well after that, you know, he was into, into seventh in the race, Rossi early on, and then a slow pit stop. I think it was the front right or the rear right was, was slow coming off. Um, and then, yeah, after that, Rossi just put himself in a situation I don't think he needed to be in at, at turn four with, with Graham Ray Hall there and put himself in the wall and kind of ruined Graham's race to a certain extent as well, which was disappointing. And, you know, Rossi said it was a racing incident and I kind of get that, but it's one of those racing incidents where it was totally avoidable in my opinion. And that, you know, Rossi didn't need to put himself in that position. We could be sat here now and he could have easily finished that race, you know, top five or at least top 10, um, you know, based on the fact that we had two late cautions that would have bunched things up and we know how quick he is and, you know, how much pace he has at St. Pete. So really symptomatic performance of where Rossi's at right now, in my opinion, making too many mistakes, not consistent enough and offset that against Colton, who just seems to be able to correct kind of any weakness that he has and, you know, really push that team forward. And that was reflective from, from what Newgarden said, calling him the top gun and said, you know, you can never rule out Alexander Rossi as a prospect. You know, he, he is a proven race winner and, you know, there's every chance that he'll win a championship in the future in IndyCar. He's got plenty of years to do it. But at the moment, his performance is a subpar and basically the opposite of what we come to expect from people like Newgarden and, and, and Dixon, where they turn those performances where they have a bad pit stop or, you know, something like that and turn that into a top five or, or a back end of a top 10 to keep the points coming in. And Rossi's fallen a lot down the order now after what should have been a, you know, a fairly uh, decent start to the season. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, we were asked this on uh, on Twitter by I know TJ, at I know TJ, who asked, uh, how do you think Rossi is handling the emergence of Colton Herter and effectively becoming the lead force of Andretti in the last year? I don't think it's anything like, um, you know, I don't think it's affecting Rossi in the sense that I don't think that's the reason why he's not performing to the to the top level because that, that kind of thing just doesn't impact these guys at the, at the top level. And we, we know that. Um, but it can't be easy for him. The pressure is is mounting because of Colton, I think, because you know it's it's obvious what that car can do in the right in the right hands on the right day. So I think you know there's um, you know there's definitely pressure mounting. I don't think it's what's causing you know Rossi's mistakes, but it can't be helping him this kind of build up of pressure. So that's going to be really interesting to see over the next few races. And obviously we're only two races in, we should say, and you know it's it's very easy to rule out rule out sort of Rossi from a a title charge after two races, but we've seen how quickly he came back in the second half of last season where he reeled off four podium four podiums in a row and nearly won at St. Pete before he before he crashed. So 
yeah, you know, for me, I think it's a bit too early to uh, to talk about, you know, Rossi falling too far down the order. But what about, um, you know, we mentioned a few times the the kind of, the, the just the level of physicality that that race produced. And, you know, we, we know a big part of that is the aero screen, which for obvious reasons, you know, is a screen in front of the driver's head. There's less air coming to the driver and it means, you know, they're getting hotter in the in the cockpit. And I know IndyCar have worked hard to to add vents and, and work with the teams to help them you know, find some, some solutions to the, to the problem, but just the nature of the humidity in St. Pete anyway is going to cause big problems, isn't it? Regardless of the aero screen. So JR Grosjean, that was his first street race. There was obviously a lot of talk about him coming into this street race. It being a very difficult one for him. We spoke about it on the podcast as well on the second episode. Make sure you go back and listen to that. If you've not heard it already, what did you think of his, um, he called it his hardest ever physical challenge, which given he's just come out of, uh, you know, recovering from those burns and, and you know, the huge crash he had in, in Bahrain, that's quite a statement for him to make, isn't it? And quite a reflection of just how difficult IndyCar street racing is. So what did you make of his drive to, to 13th in the end? I think, yeah, a little bit of a trial of fi- trial by fire of street course racing in, in IndyCar. And it, it didn't appear that those guys had a, uh, the the best handle on the car maybe over the course of the weekend. So th- there's there's a bit of that that you can just chalk up to, you know, maybe the car wasn't quite in the window where they needed it. The times were so close throughout the course of the weekend. It was it was honestly insane watching the timesheets at the end of the sessions, going through the sessions. Just a couple of tenths might get you like ten spots or something. Like it was it was really crazy how close it was. So, in terms of where he finished, and uh, you know, he was super close in qualifying and just didn't quite get it, and and all that kind of stuff a lot of the things that we've talked about just in terms of what he'll experience over the course of this year with choppy sessions and how tight IndyCar is a couple little changes make a big difference. Uh, He'll just, he'll get more dialed from that perspective. I think uh, when we talk about his performance, but to talk about the physicality of it for a minute, all the drivers were talking about it. St. Pete is one of these places that even if it's not super hot outside or it's not sunny or whatever, the humidity is just high. And it's a, as even as far as street circuits go, street circuits are all, I would say, quite physical, particularly in this IndyCar, because without power steering, it's just a lot of reaction against the steering wheel all the time. A place like Barber, the loads are higher you know, just as little straight line speed uh, or, or a straight time on the straights uh, as coming here to St. Pete, but at least it's a fairly consistent loading pattern that you're going through. So it's a little less fast twitch reacting to just keeping the car and saving the car from getting a little bit offline. You saw at the end of that race, the marbles were crazy built up and even Jimmy's, we'll talk about Jimmy in a minute, just for, just for a moment, but his spin at the end, I mean, you saw just, he probably turned in half a foot, you know, six inches late into turn three, you know, the fast flat out right-hander. He just didn't make that transition from turning left to turning right quite quickly enough and got out of the marbles and that was it. And we saw that happen to a couple of guys last year. So the precision at these tracks is really important because of things like that, particularly as you get later in the race, the track is gripping up the, just the, the difference in how grippy the, the surface is online versus how grippy it is offline is, is really dramatic. And, uh, you know, the cars are bouncing around and it's, it is certainly a physical, a physical exercise. I think the thing that a lot of guys were bringing up was just about the blistering on their hands. 
I think it was Colton in his post race. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but one of the drivers was talking about how that comes really from when you get in situations where your hands get really sweaty, that the glove basically, I mean, I, I can attest to this. I had this happen at Detroit that, you know, the, the glove, basically the glove technology is so good. Now the glove continues to stick to the steering wheel, but your hand is sweaty kind of inside the glove. So your hand is, you're just trying to basically hold on to the glove that is, <laughs> that is kind of still attached with the, the rubber on the palm of the glove to the, to the steering wheel. And you get this sort of, you know, double whammy of, not only is your hand now rubbing against the inside of the glove, which is causing the blister, but because you've got this weird dynamic of your hand slipping in and out of the glove a little bit, you're having to actually grip the wheel tighter to maintain control of the car. So a lot of the physicality starts there and, you know, then just starts to affect the whole rest of your body and becomes a very cardiovascular intensive exercise being in the car just to manage all of that so it's uh, there's a lot of strength that's going into or or sort of you know you're you're having to use your body's strength just to manage the car itself but all of that is creating fatigue and uh you know cardiovascular stress as you're doing it so you heard a lot of guys talking about it the heat certainly is does does not make it easier saint pete just the humidity is something that you can't evacuate out of the car in any way so it's just it's just hot it's a race i think that oftentimes you know usually it's the first race of the season and it does just kick you in the ass every year to kind of let you know okay i did all this training in the off season was it sufficient or not you know um and so listening to a lot of guys talk about it it was it was obvious that this event in particular long green flag periods was was just difficult Roman got a, got a taste of that. Um, but I think, you know, this is, it's an interesting topic just to talk about, you know, and, and, and Roman is the, is the right person to bring this, you know, kind of to, to, to use as context for this, that it really does show just the difference in the physicality of an IndyCar versus a Formula One car. Yes, they don't, they don't pull as many G's. They don't go quite as fast. They don't do anything, frankly, as well as a Formula One car would in these environments. But because you because it's a little bit of a heavier car, it has to be to be able to withstand a 200 mile an hour impact at the speedway. Because of the fact that it doesn't have power steering, uh, now with the aero screen as an added component, to all of that they are you know I would say they're probably the most physical cars to drive out there, especially considering that the race durations are as long as they are. So uh, it's, it's been my opinion for a long time. I've been biased because it's what I do and I hang out with these guys and see them a lot, but Scott Dixon for 20 years now, I think has been one of the fittest guys in all of motorsport. And you really do see that cream rise to the top over the course of a season. Joseph Newgarden, I think in, in recent years in particular, since moving to Penske has put himself in that same conversation as one of the fittest guys out there. You look at the workouts that these guys are doing. Usually a lot of them are looked after by either pit fit training, which is based in Indianapolis. So a lot of the indie indie based guys work out there. Rossi Hinch, uh, Scott, Scott's been with Jim Leo at pit fit for a long time um, or St. Vincent sports performance. I worked out there for a long time and and work with them remotely. So does New Garden. Pato Awards working out there. Jack Arby's working out there. 
just the 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 level of physical prep that these guys are going through, the kind of weird things that they're doing and how specific it is just to having the strength and the sort of physical tenacity in a way to be able to get through a full length, full duration IndyCar event, get out and be feeling like you could have gone five more laps uh, is a really, really important thing to be able to do these days, particularly when the field's so close and when there's so much talent up and down the field. I think this is a, this is a year where not as if it hasn't mattered in years past, but this is a year where you're going to see a little bit of that show, I think over the course of the season. Jimmy's a good example of that. So we can kind of transition to him. We've seen a lot of his workout regimen. We know that he's been one of the fittest guys in NASCAR for a long time. Coming over to IndyCar, obviously a lot of things changing. What was your take on on just his weekend in general? You know, it's it's difficult because you see things on social media about Jimmy and, you know, I've heard people talking about, you know, his transition and, and how well he's getting on. For me, I think he's done a fantastic job. I think it's you just can't expect too much from him at this point. And you have to take context into consideration. You know, the fact that he's never driven any of these cars before. It's no new ground, actually. And we don't need to spend too much time on it on this podcast because we've discussed it before. I think, you know, anyone who kind of writes him off now is just not really taking into consideration the circumstances that he's in. You know, he's a, he's an older guy. He's doing this for fun primarily. It's something that he's always wanted to do. And it's, um, you know, his way of testing himself to a, to a different level. And, you know, he's doing it in arguably the most competitive championship that, that is out there and you know let's just consider the qualifying for for and, and use that as an example you know the the two groups in qualifying that make it through to the top 12 the two groups none of them were separated um you know the gap from sixth to seventh which is the the cutoff to qualify from the group none of those was decided by um well they were both under a tenth so you, you know the difference between making it through to the top 12 and qualifying to be able to fight for the top six you know, is, is, is less than a 10th, which is, you know, people talk about Formula One being close, but that's, you know, that's just alien. That is, you know, a phenomenally close set of circumstances for someone like Jimmy to be going up against. And do you know what? I saw a lot of people criticizing him and do you know what? His mistakes were, you know, pretty poor in, in you know, if we're just analyzing them as a, you know, a, a top elite level driver in, in this championship, making those kind of mistakes is, is you know, they, they were poor. But from what I saw, you know, once he go in, when he got going after the, the crash at the hairpin, you know, his pace was only three or four attempts off on the reds. And that was with reds that were kind of spent by 27 laps. So, you know, even on the older reds that some people like Jack Harvey who finished fourth, he really struggled in that first stint on the reds, you know, some top, top drivers really struggling to keep those reds alive. And Jimmy was three or four attempts off, you know, some of the other guys who were on fresh reds when he was, you know, 27 laps in. So there's just, there's signs of promise, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there's some, there's some really good stuff going on for, for someone who's never raced a, a single seater before, you know, before, before this year. So, you know, for me, Jimmy, um, you know, I just can't be too negative about what he's doing because I'm just so in awe of the challenge that he's taken on and so respectful of, you know, what he's, what he's going up against. And, you know, there are going to be silly moments like him spinning and, and stuff like that. That's just, it's just going to happen. It's just, it's just a fact of life that that is going to happen in a car because the cars are so difficult to control anyway. And we see the odd people, the odd person, you know, with a lot of experience spinning and, and, and losing the car. So it's going to happen, but I'd, I'd caution against ruling him out, you know, getting a lot closer to the pace by the end of the year and to the start of next season. Cause I, I think that's going to be, very interesting. And before we move on as well, let's do uh, Scott McLaughlin because he's the last of the kind of three rookies we've not spoken about. Should mention, by the way, that Grosjean is top of the rookie of the year battle at the moment, um, which is quite interesting. I think if you'd have told him that, you know, coming in, he'd have taken that against Scott McLaughlin for sure. Um, so that's quite an interesting um, part of the story. But yeah, Scott set the second quickest lap of the race. It's kind of expecting him to move forward a little bit. 
when he was on the three stopper, but obviously the the cautions kind of negated that three stopper and made it you know irrelevant. No one needed to save fuel after after the caution, so it kind of eliminated any sort of advantage he might have had towards the end of the race, which was a bit disappointing. But still, good drive, and I think the more laps he gets, the more you know close to the pace he's uh, he's going to get as well. So I think important to to point him out, and you know the the, the fact that he was second quickest in the race was was pretty good for me really I was uh, I was quite impressed by that because to be honest as we've discussed before I think St. Pete was really poor from from him from a just from looking from the outside in on a like a timesheet perspective you know he was he was right at the back and you know I was wondering at that point you know how good is this guy going to be next year and how how what is the upside how close to the pace is he going to get but it's you know it's quite clear that you know St. Pete was obviously a difficult challenge for him last year amid coming over from COVID and all that kind of stuff and and still you know made his debut and, and gave it a go. And I think now he's had quite a lot of testing now. I think he's, well, it's not quite a lot of testing relatively, is it? But, you know, he's he's had some testing in the car and he knows what it's going to do. He knows how to react to the car. We saw that epic slide coming off turn four, didn't we, on the broadcast, which was just mental. Like he was so sideways um, and just, you know, showing that he can hold things like that and, and keep things, you know, planted is, is really cool. So glad to see him kind of, at least showing signs of what to expect from him in the future, even if the results don't appear to be quite there at the minute. I still think finishing, you know, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th in IndyCar at the moment is still a pretty decent achievement, even if it's not, you know, the headline results that that people, you know, really want to see. But yeah, I guess that kind of rounds up most of the major storylines from St. Pete. And we're going to catch some more of St. Pete in the kind of uh, questions that we'll get later on from from Twitter. We're going to go back to to some of those because we put a, a tweet out on Monday afternoon and got quite a lot of questions, which was nice, JR. So we'll, we'll go to those in a minute. But just want to pick up on Texas because you did mention that briefly in um, in the previous kind of question there. And I guess, you know, we've got some error changes coming for, for Texas. And from a driver's point of view, sort of, um, you know, how much is that going to impact things? Do you think we've obviously got, there's a little bit of change in the surface as well at Texas, isn't there? So there's, there is some changes before the, you know, before the race coming up and it's the first overall of the season, which is always exciting. So the, I guess the the floor changes are the, are the big thing going into Texas. What have you heard and, and what do you kind of expect, you know, for, in terms of how the, how it's going to change the playing field up a little bit? Yeah, I have a little bit of experience just, I guess, seeing, seeing the floor, the bits that they've changed for the floor. So uh, same stuff that they're going to allow for the 500 this year. So I saw them at the open test and had talked to everybody a little bit about how the Texas test went and, and just interested to understand as much as we can in my, in, in, in my frame of mind, looking forward to Indy, but just, you know, getting a general feel for what everybody thinks about them. I guess I'd so so I guess for the, for the listeners, the biggest change is they've got a, what everybody's calling them sort of different things, but there's a hole in the floor in the front front section of the floor in the Indy cars. And that's been there for a number of years now, basically just to reduce the chance of blowover flips, basically. So they've created this sort of hole, the, the floor section of the Indy car, the front front of the floor section is quite large and wide relative to any other open wheel cars. And that there was a little bit of concern when this car first came out, the Delara DW12, that's been going through some various iterations since 2012, that that floor sucked. We had a couple of scenarios where cars did get airborne and just seemed to stay airborne a little longer than you'd have liked them to, basically. So they decided to put these holes there, kind of thinking that that would reduce the chance if the front tire, if the front end of the car got airborne, that a little bit of air flow being able to flow through there rather than catching this big flat section 
of the front of the floor would reduce the chance of the car getting more air and blowing over. So they've kind of, that's obviously the car was not designed to be that way uh, in the initial, just in terms of the grip and the way that the floor works to produce downforce. So there's always been these kind of tweaks going on to make that a little bit more efficient, make it work a little bit better. Uh, this year, we've got another one of those tweaks, basically, which is to kind of reduce the overall area there. And it's shaped differently so that the air flows through it and hits a wicker. So theoretically, just a little bit more downforce for the cars coming from that section of the car. It is honestly sort of right in the middle of the chassis. So it, it's, I think, thought of as just being sort of a total downforce increase. For Indy, I know that we've, we're going to be allowed to use the diffuser strikes this year, which are sections that go through the sort of diffuser openings at the exit of the car, which is new for us. I know that they'll be able to use those for Texas as well. I'm not sure if they have in the past or not. They run slightly different configurations for these things. But then the other new piece that's been getting a lot of chatter around it, at least within the IndyCar paddock, is an extension that comes off the front of the floor now that is when you can see the cars up close, it's pretty easy to tell when the extensions are on or not. It's almost like a little mini barge board, basically, that sticks out close to the chassis, close to the tub at the front of the floor. Uh, should be an increase in uh, front down, you know, should increase the COP of the car basically. So bring the, bring the arrow balance forward a little bit, add more, uh, you know, kind of create a little bit more effectiveness of the front wing. And I guess the, the, the consensus of what I understand right now, at least is that none of these things are like a dramatic change in overall downforce or overall handling characteristics of the car. They should all add some downforce. They should all make the car a little bit more efficient, with this aero configuration, the the car in super speedway trim definitely has had, I think it, with the, particularly last year with the aero screen getting added on, that just brought the, it, it brought the weight distribution so much further forward and higher up that a lot of teams and drivers were feeling like the front wing was pretty ineffective to try to continue to add front grip. So just having this kind of arrow to mechanical imbalance that was really hard to reconcile. So a lot of these, you know, bits and pieces have been added to try to just bring that a little bit more into equilibrium in terms of the tuning tuning window that you have on the car in super speedway trim. And uh, I think that going to Texas, it's always a tough track. The years when it's not tough to just go out there, it's because they've allowed teams basically just to pile downforce on and or teams will start to do it. And then it just becomes, you know, like a, a snowball effect of everybody then doing it because you're trying to protect against, you know, one or two cars being really great at the end of a run, even if they're lousy at the start. You know, I think that since the the what's what's counterbalanced or sort of counteracted all of that is the fact that they've added this PJ one, um, you know, traction compound for NASCAR, which you see as the this enormous black patch that takes up basically it's there's there's one lane underneath it that's kind of the stand the regular color of the rest of the track through turns one and two, and there's a big black patch that goes almost all the way up to the wall. Um, it's it's kind of funny to me. There is one lane all the way up against the wall that is not covered in this stuff. And I've always 
sort of wonder, you know, there have been some times California Speedway comes to mind to me out in Fontana where the fast line around the place, just because of the way the track, the, the track was really low grip. It was sandy, all that kind of stuff was literally just to run all the way up against the wall. I'm, I'm a little surprised that I haven't seen anybody even try it, but at, at, at Texas, particularly for the IndyCar, whatever exactly the, the, you know, sort of chemistry and scenario of the whole thing is the IndyCars just don't work. The Firestone tires, the the way the cars load up, they just don't work on this traction compound. And so you've ended up with basically one lane through turns one and two, uh, and then opening up and kind of a standard standard deal where there's a couple of different lanes that you can run through three and four. That's produced maybe not the most exciting you know, races over the last couple of years. There's certainly last year where the, where this was all in effect was, you know, it, it was really just, it, it becomes a, it becomes a situation where you have to be able to get your pass almost completely committed and you're, and you're playing a little bit of chicken with guys entering turn one, basically, because it just funnels down to one lane. You saw Felix Rosenquist at the end of the race last year. I don't think it really had anything to do with marbles or, you know, getting up in what we would normally think of as kind of being the gray he just tried to run it with two wheels on the traction compound and there's like 20% less grip or something, you know, and he just couldn't hang on to it and, and lost it. You saw that basically every car that tried that last year um, ended up in the wall, if not ended up completely out of the gas down to second gear or something, losing 10 spots. So I think, unfortunately, I don't see the arrow changes to the cars making a really significant difference in terms of how this event plays out or these, you know, this double header event. It's unfortunate because Texas is obviously a place that's produced some really great races uh, on both ends of the spectrum in the past. It's produced some obviously really high intensity races when the aero package has been such that it's more of a pack race. And, you know, I think it's, it's a place that within the IndyCar paddock, you know, sometimes they're not the most exciting races to see somebody just blow everybody's doors off, but they're, they're sometimes when the aero package is such that it's really hard. You see, that's, that's when you see Scott Dixon go lap the field basically, you know, and, and win one of these races. And that's in my mind, I guess, equally impressive for its own reasons and at least evocative of something that makes, makes it interesting. You, you're seeing a, a driver and, and his or her team, really doing something extraordinary in the context of, of what everybody else is doing. So I think if there's, if there's something that, that sort of arises, that's interesting out of these next, out of these upcoming races, it's going to be something more like that. You know, you'll see a, you'll see an, it will have an event like this last one was, you know, whether it's Colton or somebody else, uh, you might see somebody who's just on written really dominant form who manages to figure all of these things out and, and, and get it dialed in. But, um, you know, it's, it's always a, it's an ever changing progression at Texas. And I guess my hope, frankly, is just that, you know, we can figure out a way, whether it's the track, you know, there was a lot of discussion after the test days that were had there just to, to kind of try out the arrow pieces and all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of discussion about what the track might be able to do to improve the quality of, cause if they can just, if they could get it so that there's just one more usable lane at Texas, then that, that completely changes the scenario. Um, but the, the consensus was that something fairly dry, it's not going to come down to just, 
getting out there with some other kind of sealer or, you know, using the tire dragon or doing something like that. It's going to be like grinding the track or diamond grinding the track or doing something to really fundamentally change what that surface looks like to change it. So, um, you know, I think if we're going to have an interesting race this weekend, it's, it's not going to be, unfortunately, it's not going to be because we're seeing a lot of side to side action, you know, car on car combat going on. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we'll see a pack race, but we've got at least a new tire coming for for this race. With obviously the pandemic halted the 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 kind of tire that was tested in 2019 being introduced for 2020 because of you know Firestone just not being you know not having the time to be able to produce enough tires basically because of the pandemics. I, I think that was the the kind of main reason anyway. So yeah, there'll be a new tire, and I think uh, as far as I know, since the end of March they've been removing the the PJ one, which I'm sure a lot of IndyCars will be uh, happy to hear. They've been doing that at night, I think, as well to to stop having to use chemicals because that can damage the track surface so they've been out there at night scraping that stuff off i think so i'm not sure entirely if they've scraped all of it off ready for for the race or whether it'll just be a section but we'll we'll kind of see that this week when teams get there and we start to see some some pictures of the track and stuff like that so that's going to be interesting have you got a, a standout prediction for who might win we both went with power i think for saint pete and made ourselves look stupid <laughs> again uh, lee, lee diffie refused to to put his cards on the table very sensibly, as you might expect from someone as intelligent and uh, clever as Lee Diffie. So how uh, how are we going to make ourselves look stupid this week? Do you want to go first or shall I? Uh, I'll go first. I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to give a top three this time instead of just picking nice. one, okay? So maybe, nice. maybe I get a little bit of... Uh, Get a little bit of help. Is that not even more difficult. We've got two races, so I guess I'll I'll give just a generalized. These are guys that I think are going to be in contention. I think Colton's going to be up there. Uh, I'd be shocked if Scott isn't. And uh, Joseph coming off a. I think this is a great. This is a weekend for him to be able to show that he's fully back in the mix and ready to rock and roll for the rest of the year. Uh, for a lot of these guys, this is. This is an event even more so than the GP that's going to sort of dictate their momentum going into the month of May, just just how they're kind of feeling and and their vibe. So uh, I'm going to say those three guys have all had really standout stellar runs at Texas in recent years. Colton, the one to your point earlier, had something maybe to maybe to learn from his, you know, recent experience there in terms of, you know, how he treats a couple of specific types of situations uh but but as we've said like not crashing into scott dixon you mean yeah well yeah getting into getting into scott that was that was something that we should it'll be hopefully it doesn't come up over the course of this weekend but uh you know he's like he said he's a quick learner and uh i think those are those are the three guys for me to watch certainly over the course of the weekend well, you picked, um, obviously Dixon won the race last year and New Garden was on pole. So you probably picked two guys with good pedigree there. Um, obviously it'd be interesting to see how the changes we discussed kind of mix things up if they do. Uh, the only ones I'd, I'd kind of add to the mix is Simon Pagano. I think he's so outwardly blatantly confident about Penske's overall pace and his pace, um, you know, heading into the season. That'd be very surprised if he's not in, in and around, um, you know, the, the kind of top spots and it kind of faded in the race a little bit last year, didn't he? But, um, you know, kind of early on, he was, he was, he was looking really good. And obviously the Ganassi cars just had something else in the second half of the race. And uh, like you said, really, he just kind of blew everyone away, really. I think with the, you know, the amount of pace that they had at, at the end of the race, which was really impressive. Felix Rosenquist, the only one, um, I guess, you know, you mentioned his incident with Hinch when you were talking about the quality of the track and, 
he's another one who kind of needs a bit of a a bit more of a rebound weekend after two difficult weekends. I mean, he had a much better weekend than Pato did at St. Pete. Um, you know, we got asked uh, on Twitter. We'll get to some uh, some some more of those questions shortly. But uh, Rudy Aribe asked us what happened to Aaron McLaren SP, and basically Pato started sixth, but just started to fall back pretty pretty quickly. And yeah, just uh, they just couldn't get that car working. And he sounded really desperate on the radio a few times. Um, you know, just really 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 struggling with the with the car. I just said, uh, you know, every change we make doesn't work, and nothing we do is working. He was saying on the on the radio, really struggling. Um, obviously involved in that incident later on with uh, Ed Jones as well. He clipped Ed Jones when Ed Jones had spun, but at that point he'd already locked up at the hairpin and lost uh, three or four spots, which really kind of put him behind a lot of people on the same strategy, which is always going to be basically impossible to make that time up. So uh, I think he ended up back in 17th in the end, but Felix at least, um, you know, struggled in qualifying, but worked his way up from the back of the grid. Um, pretty, pretty decent effort. Tried to go on that three stopper and pitted early to try and, you know, give himself the advantage of not having to save fuel. Like a lot of people did at the start of the barber race, worked out for Paul Day and VK, didn't it, in the barber race. But the cautions, as we discussed earlier on, really negated the advantage and everyone got to run under caution and save a load of fuel. So it didn't make too much of a difference in that sense. So that's kind of what happened to them. Um, but yeah, I think Felix will be, you know, he was so good at Texas, wasn't he, in the second half of that race last year that I think, if he could, I think if he could have any moment of his IndyCar career back, it would be that one where he tried to go around Hinch around the outside because if he'd just been a tiny bit more patient, he definitely would have won that race, 100%. Uh, his pace was so strong at that point. So, yeah, Dixon, he's uh, he's a tough man to beat and he's uh, he just doesn't make those mistakes, does he? So right. he's uh, basically impossible to compete against when he's in that kind of form, really, um, especially when you make stupid mistakes as a driver, which is always going to be a red rag to a ball with with Scott Dixon. So yeah, that's our that's our predictions. Hopefully we'll be a bit more uh, accurate than we were at St. Pete. I'm trying to start ahead of my bets totally got that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've gone for a top three. I like what you've done there. You're a clever guy, aren't you, JR? You're a clever guy. Right, we've got some questions on Twitter, so I'll throw a couple of these at you and you can see what you think. Let's have a look. This one I was really interested to get your take on, actually. Sean Salter asked us on Twitter, we see Colton Herter practically dominated the race. How easy is it to lose concentration when leading for so long like that, given how much temperature might have affected the drivers in, in the car? Obviously, when we add up the stress of a race just generally, and then you add in a shed load of humidity, you know, that that must really stress you out when you when you're uh, even when you're not leading the race, really, even when you're just fighting for position. But yeah, give us an idea of what that must have been like for Colton. Is that something that you really have to you know, make a mental effort to fight against, um, you know, you have to think while you're in the car, right. I can't let the humidity get to me. I can't let, I can't be, you know, overrun by all these things that are happening right now. I can definitely say if you start to really, if you start to feel the physicality of, of the event creeping in and, and I think the, we talked earlier about the blisters, that can be something that you just, it's unavoidable to be a little bit distracted by it. That I guess I would say, to be honest with you, for in that respect, when we're just talking about, you know, heat or something physically sort of bothering you while you're driving, you're stoked if you're leading the race because you just have a lot of a lot less otherwise you're in control. So you have a lot less otherwise to be paying attention to your lap. Is, you, you are going to be running the most consistent lap in clean air of anybody in the field. So I think that that plays into your advantage a little bit. You you have a much clearer sense of how controlled you are from a performance perspective relative to everybody else. So he knew, you know, when once he could build a little bit of those gaps, he knows that he's got a little bit left in the tank. He doesn't have to be absolutely on edge for the entire event. He can he can 
sort of find some places where he's managing whatever physical stress he's dealing with. I think the, the, the more interesting part of that question maybe is just from a mental perspective, losing concentration or, or whatever. And I think that's where for Colton, I mentioned it earlier, you heard it kind of in the post-race interviews that I think that's just something that he doesn't deal with really. I, you just don't get the sense. I get the sense watching him and watching him drive and talking to him and listening to him that that's not a concern of his. It is something that can start to sort of creep in for sure. Uh, but for the most part, I would say when you're leading a race, the thing that that I I think is sometimes hard for people to put themselves in this position and sort of ima- imagine it for themselves is when you're leading the race, you are just feeling in control. Um, you're, you're feeling like you're feeling confident because you're in that position, because you, because you're hitting your marks, it's all, all of this stuff sort of goes together. You wouldn't be leading the race if you'd, if you were sort of out of whack and feeling stressed and, you know, wondering about things and getting distracted by what's going on. Uh, so all of that really comes together in a, particularly in a situation like this, where you're leading in, in totally dominant fashion, there, there's a bunch of things that are sort of aligned in terms of your mental state and, and, and aligned between mind and body in terms of what you're doing physically in the car that all go together. So I think from his, if you ask him about it, I don't think that there's much room for distraction because he's doing what he does best in that moment. And that's you know, driving the car better than everybody else, uh, at, at that point in time, comfortable with it, comfortable with what he's hearing from his team and and all the rest of that stuff. So a better question, maybe for guys that are further back in the field that are, you know, and you see, when you see moments when guys just kind of start losing the plot, those may be your situations where this applies, but for Colton out front, uh, it's just not even something that, that starts to creep into your mind at that point. You're, you're half a step ahead. Uh, every corner, every lap when you're, when you're in that mode. Lance Gallant sent us a question. Do you think Colton can slash should make a transition from IndyCar to Formula One? I think, uh, I think this topic comes up quite a lot when it comes to anyone who's half decent in IndyCar suddenly gets linked with, oh, you know, he's quick in single seaters in America, so he should be in Formula One. I think, uh, I think Colton's talented enough to, to, to at least make an effort at it. Uh, I think until you put someone in Formula One, it's very difficult to tell if they're good enough. We've seen so many people who struggled in junior single seaters at times, you know, be such good Formula One drivers. And then people who've dominated in junior single seaters really struggle to make an impact in Formula One. So I think it's uh, so much of that is how you perform when you get there. But I think for me, for Colton, you know, w- what is he going to gain by going to Formula One at this point? Uh, you know, he's not going to get enough testing and he's not going to be you know, as as well prepared as some of the juniors who are coming up through Formula Two to go into that scenario, um, and also, you know, it, you know, he might get one or two years there, and if he's if he's not good enough, then he's just another guy who wasn't good enough for Formula One, uh, damages reputation, and then who knows whether he'd come back into IndyCar? I'm sure he, I'm sure he would, but uh, I just don't think it's a a jump he needs to make. I think he's I think he's building something really special in America. I think. You know, the the sponsors, the fans love him. He gave Gamebridge their first IndyCar win, I think, for this weekend. So, you know, I think he's, you know, he looks great like you. He's got great hair and, you know, he says all the right things after the race and <laughs> he, he delivers in the car when he's under intense pressure. And every time he makes a mistake, he seems to be able to fix it. So, you know, I, I just don't see what benefit he, he gets by going to Formula One because I think we're 10 years off, at least really, Formula One being equal enough that someone could go over there and, you know, really fight because at the minute, you know, unless Colton's jumping in the Merc, then 
he's got an, up, an uphill struggle to prove himself, hasn't he? And, you know, it, it gets to a point where even if you're going into a midfield team or a back marker, the, the te- your teammate's going to be so good that you are just going to have to be on it immediately and perform into an incredible level to, just to beat your teammate. And if you don't, then, you know, your career is almost over in, in a sense. So, yeah, I think that'd be my take on Colton. I think I think he's doing the right thing in America. I think they made that decision a long time ago when they moved him back over from from his year in MSA Formula and in, in, in Europe to go back into America. And I think... I think he's doing the right thing. I think he's building a. I think he's building something special there. And also, I'd like to say thank you to CM Parfait sixteen who asked us about Jimmy Johnson. But I think we've, I think we covered off that uh, a little bit earlier on. Um, and Simon Pagano, I mentioned as a contender for, for Texas. Mark Whiteleg asked us about him, um, and I'll take that one quickly because I spoke to Simon after the race yesterday. And um, Mark's question was, uh, that was the best we've seen from Simon since his last podium uh, in July. What would you rate his race in St. Pete? And if he can get over the woes of 2020, can he be a contender for the title this year? Well, Barbara was just a bit uh, of a difficult one. They've they've really not sorted out that, that understeer problem, um, which was evident in Barber because Simon wasn't crushing it like he said he could if he had the, the car where he wanted it. So he said after the race yesterday, they've still got some work to do with their, their road course setup. But to be honest, Mark, basically what he said was that the street setup is quite a bit different to the road course setup. So, you know, immediately... The, the car was better. He also said, you know, they were only in St. Pete in October. So he's got a good kind of baseline to go off, although the temperatures would have been different and that kind of thing. You know, they had a good base setup left over from October. So they, they kind of knew they had a decent car coming in and they've worked hard on getting the tyres up to, to temperature earlier in the stint, which has been one of Penske's uh, little kind of niggles that they've been trying to work out as well. So um, that's why St. Pete was better. Um, I'd say he did well to get a podium and he didn't do anything stupid and didn't throw away a really strong result and scored good points, which is what you need to do if you're going to win a championship. And he's in a, he's in a real strong position now, not too far off the, the top of the, the championship after two pretty quiet races, you would say almost, even though the second one was obviously a podium. So yeah, um, I think that was a good performance. And I think he, I think he's, I think he's nailed the, the start to the year, especially when you consider the car not being where it needed to be in the first race. And he's still, you know, well inside championship contention. I think he's 16 points off the lead or, or something like that. So he's, he's, he's well there or, or thereabouts. And um, yeah, the, the biggest, the biggest question mark is going to be how they work on that road course setup because they've had an off season to work on it now and they've had all of last season to work on it. So, you know, if they've not found the problem yet, then, or if they've not been able to fix the problem yet, even, um, you know, that's a, a big question mark. The good news for him is obviously the, the Grand Prix, um, the Indianapolis road course race is a, a place where he can he could start 58th and still win the race there because he's that good there. <laughs> so uh, if you are a Simon Pagano fan, Mark, that's something that you can uh, rely on, that he'll be uh, good when we get to the next road course, even if they haven't solved their underlying road course issues. Let's come back to you, JR. Uh, you kind of touched on this uh, around about kind of way, but not specifically in terms of Tyler's question. So Tyler Scott asked us, uh, St. Pete seems less racy than it was with the former iteration of the DW12. Why is that? Is it something to do with a smaller hole poked and therefore there's more dirty air instead of a kind of a pocket draft situation? What's what's your take on that? Do you, do you have an answer for that or is it a bit too difficult to kind of <laughs> isolate that into one thing really? Yeah, I think it's it's just a matter year to year. The tracks change a little bit, the way the competition builds and and how the events go really has a lot to do with it. I guess I would say this year, while you definitely saw some high deg on the reds at the beginning of the race, this is an event where I guess in the past, you've just seen a greater variance in degradation and that play a bigger role in how the event plays out. It also became a pretty clear two-stop race. So that just makes for less, 
less variance in strategy over the course of the event, which typically plays a plays a bigger role. This this race used to be longer by five or ten laps or something, I yeah. think. And so, you know, IndyCar is always tweaking that a little bit just to try to to try to open up more opportunities for different things happening. To try to avoid there being these really clear, okay, this is just going to be this number of stops and it's going to be a fuel save race or whatever. These last two events ended up being that way, I think just because we had yellow at the beginning, but um, you know, so that sort of locked them in. I think had they gone a little bit differently at the beginning of the races, you'd have seen much more, a much more mixed bag of, of what was going on. So, I mean, I would say, I think that this current iteration of the car is probably the most racy or is fit to be the most racy in these situations, just because it's got the least amount of downforce, the highest straightaway speeds, the, the biggest thing that we think about from that perspective, downforce level is really just the more downforce you have, the harder it is typically to follow through the corners. And that that's typically what makes, uh, you know, makes the racing better or worse. And so uh, from a driver's perspective, less downforce usually means more tired egg. And it usually means, uh, you get a, you definitely get that suck up down the straightaway in the draft, but aren't as affected by it through the corners. And, uh, you know, this, this current package from IndyCar should lend itself to better racing. And we'll, I think we'll, we'll see that as the year goes on. I think that kind of answers, uh, at law guy, Ben's question on Twitter as well. He was talking about, um, in a race like St. Pete, uh, you know, what can a driver do who's qualified mid pack, but has good pace to do, to get on the podium. And basically what you can do is bet against cautions and alter your strategy, isn't it? Start a different tire. Um, but unfortunately when the cautions play out, like they did at St. Pete the weekend, the, like you said, it was such a clear two stop race. It was really nothing. Any of the midfield guys could, could particularly do. And it was, it was basically what tire you started the race on and how, you know, how you were able to, to make passes and, and move through the field. And some guys were able to do that a bit easier than us. Some guys made it easier for themselves, like Sato kind of, uh, bumping Hinch off the road there, which was <laughs> another kind of board a award situation from Barber that I think will probably, uh, yeah, a bit of a on the line move. Uh, Hitch tweeted uh, Sartoed, which was uh, right. which really really made me laugh. Actually, I thought that was quite funny. But uh, yeah, I think that basically what you can do in when you qualify mid pack. Um, well, first of all, I should say don't qualify mid pack because that's a big issue on a street course, isn't it? Really. But when we're talking about margins less than a tenth, you can forgive the guys who've qualified mid pack and say bet against strategy. But obviously, you know there was no real variance in strategy over the over that race. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, like, if you looked at Barber as an example of a little bit more of a typical, okay, from the green flag, if there hadn't been a bunch of yellow, that would have been a really difficult race to go two stops. You still, you would have had that as an option one way or the other. And from where Pato, you know, watching Pato's race and Bordet and, and Renus ending up on sort of some variations of a three-stop race, uh, you would have seen that be a much more powerful move relative to the guys on two stops. And I think that's that's typically what you would see in these situations uh, when the race allows yeah. for it. No, I agree. And and lastly, Peter Cowan, he tweeted us to say, with such small swings in performance causing huge swings in results, how do you go about judging people's relative form? And to be honest, that's a, that's a big issue for me right now because I've got 24 cars that could all, you know, basically finish anywhere over the course of a weekend and trying to break that down as a journalist is it's pretty difficult because you can't ride on board with every single car for, for a hundred laps and you can't listen in on the radio and you can't, um, you know, you can't always speak to every engineer and every driver and every mechanic after every race. So it is difficult to keep up at the moment. I've got to say, and 
you know, that's a great problem to have for the series because it just means, you know, that, that there's so much variance in where everyone's finishing. What you can do is kind of analyse, um, you know, where their teammates have been. Uh, you can analyse where people on the same strategy have, have finished relative to, you know, where they started and you can break it down that way. Um, but yeah, you could, basically, you've just got to watch lap times and in, in stints as well and, and work out, you know, who's putting in, you know, the best lap times on each tyre in, in any set stint, um, you know, how many laps they've got on the tyres. It's so difficult because so many things can change the order of things. I mean, you know, we saw like just pit entry and pit out has been massive this year already. Um, and it's something you can't really measure from the eye. You know, you can't really see that happening. But some people have had great pit stops and just not quite nailed the in-lap or the out-lap and that's really uh, set them back. And, you know, it's quite difficult to analyse that while it's happening in, in a race situation. So, yeah, it's definitely thrown up some issues. But I think all you can do really is, um, you know, analyse those different things that you've got in front of you and try your best to, to come to a, to a solution. But, you know, I think the, the good thing we have in IndyCar is, you know, we spend maybe 50% of the year talking about how competitive everything is, but it's always the same guys who are at the top. So right. when it comes to the, when it comes to the end of the year, you know how to judge people because, you know, the championship tells a story and there will be some outliers. There was people last year who had bad luck and should have finished much higher than they did. Um, you know, people like Jack Harvey comes to mind. He was one of the best qualifiers last year and, you know, just could not nail that top five for whatever reason. It, loads of real bad luck, like um, the brakes going at Road America was a, you know, one that I, that stands out to, to memory. And, you know, I guess that example stands out so much because it's a small team and you, you know, you're kind of enjoying that underdog story to a certain point and expecting them to, to kind of take it to the big boys and, and do a really good job. And they were, they were better than some of the Andretti cars really for most of the last year, even, you know, as a lot of the Andretti cars were struggling, you know, my track racing looked really good. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to point out, you know, how good Jack's uh, race was at, at St. Pete, even if he wasn't managed to, even if he didn't manage to get on the podium. I was just going to say, point- to chime in for a second, I guess I think that the thing that I, when I, when I just watch, like looking at practice sessions, I think is, is an interesting and, and qualifying where there's not as many variables in terms of how the result comes together that I know the things that I'm looking at. And, and certainly I think that our you know listeners can look at from the outside is there's really two things that go into achieving a, a, t- a lap time, the result in those kinds of situations. When you've got some different, you've got, you can take some, you can take some swings at it. There's uh, there's less going on. Your in and out laps don't matter. Your pit stops don't matter. All that kind of stuff. And one is how over the course of the weekend or, and, or the session you with your, as a driver, with your engineer and your team, how good are you actually getting your car? Like that's a part for you. And how, how good are you at adapting to, uh, as team or driver adapting to where that car sort of is at the moment and, and understanding what you need out of it and, and making that a realistic target. So part of it is just for, for that specific driver, we'd mentioned last week that Pagano is one of the guys that really wants it to be a certain way and knows that if they get it to be a certain way that he's going to haul ass, but maybe if they maybe they work so hard at getting it to be that certain way that if they don't get it there, that his performance just in terms of what he's kind of capable, like the performance of him in that car is just lower. The other piece of it then becomes how good is driver to driver at extracting the maximum out of it when the time comes. So, you know, there's a piece of it that's very much this team effort of getting the working with the car, getting it into the window. And then there's another piece of it that is just execution when it comes down to it. And I think that's where, you know, you see 
why we see guys like Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden, Will Power in qualifying is a good example of it, where they have an ability to be, I think, highly adaptive just kind of in the moment or in in Will and Scott, or sorry, in, in Joseph and Scott's case in particular, over the course of a of a weekend and and a ra- and a race distance of kind of just adapting their own style to be able to get whatever the car is going to give them in a way that I think they're a few percent better at that than lots of other guys. When I was teammates with Joseph at ECR before he went to Penske, that was something that I could see in him even then. Like part of the reason that he was as good at some of the places as he was, was just because out of nowhere, he would completely change his style for one lap you know, in a, in a qualifying stint, just had kind of an innate sense of what the car was, what sort of he needed to try. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't something that he was having to think about a lot. It was just something that he went out and did in a way that at that time, when I looked at it, I kind of thought, man, like I, I would have had to have like looked at the windsock or something to recognize that for that corner, that it needed this change in kind of how I was breaking or something. Um, you know, for him that just came a little bit more naturally one out of 10 times or something, but that, that's that, that's that 10th or 10th and a half that then you have that maybe a lot of other guys, maybe there's only one or two other guys in the field that do in that moment. And so to your point, you can definitely judge guys against their teams as they go along over the course of the weekend. But then, you know, when, when you start to see these kind of standout performances, whether it be in qualifying or it be in the race, that in itself, I think is a trend that showcases that driver's ability to do something a little bit more special in the moment, uh, to extract that maximum performance. So those are, those are the things I know I find myself really hungry for like the data coming from the series. We we're seeing a little bit more of this in formula one, uh, I would love to see it from the IndyCar series because it would it would really help, I think, to showcase all of these things because it's so tight. You know, in F1, you've got to have between teammates that both qualify in the top eight or something. There still might be three or four tenths between them. In the IndyCar series, that's the difference between, you know, Newgarden being qualifying third or whatever and Will Power being 20th, you know? And so I think... Um, I would love to be able to, to, to dig into that a little bit more and, and help from the perspective of the series, help fans understand just where those little differences come from and, and how powerful they are. Because, because absolutely just these little, little changes, little changes to the car, even, you know, Grosjean was talking about it, um, little mechanical tweaks. That's where those two tenths that make the difference between transferring or not come from. And that's just a completely different ball game from most other championships. Good question, Peter. We enjoyed that one. We managed to talk about it for about 10 or 15 minutes. So that was a good effort. Thanks very much, <laughs> Peter. Thanks to all of you who sent us in your, your questions this week. Really enjoyed that, actually. Um, I think we should uh, we should try and do that most weeks, Joe, when we get the opportunity, because that's it's pretty cool to hear what the fans are thinking and what they want answered from a race weekend, because sometimes you get so honed in on what you kind of want to answer from from your kind of anal- analysis of, of the weekend that you kind of forget things or you maybe miss things out. So it's great to hear, you know, what the what the fans are kind of unlockers of the series are thinking as well. So thanks for joining us on the third episode of the Races IndyCar podcast. We've enjoyed having you along. JR, thanks very much again. And uh, yeah, I hope you're uh, going to refresh yourself now and get ready for some text action. Um, 
something tells me you're going to find this weekend this weekend a bit easier than me because it's going to be like 4 a.m. in the uh, <laughs> in the morning watching the races for me. But I'm going to switch to a US time zone and I'm going to be back on the next episode of the Races IndyCar podcast to try and bring some anal- analytical, some some anal- analysis, analysis. Let's say that. Try and bring some analysis and insight into what happens at Texas. So thanks so much, Jr. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you.